You're listening to Innovation Fuel, a business podcast by University Canada West. Bringing you fantastic stories for accomplished entrepreneurs and key industry professionals. Let's explore the entrepreneurial world through local businesses and our university community. Good morning, Dave. How are you today? Doing great, and you, Galari? How are how are the how's the family? How uh, how are the skills? <laughs> <laughs> My family are great, thank you. Do you remember we talked with Jack Smith about Indigenous people and their challenges? What is the problem ecosystems for entrepreneur ecosystem? And then he mentioned several things about finding skills, right talents, connecting those ta- talents together. I look at it, there is a lot of incentive for corporates to hire indigenous people, tax incentives, uh, salary subsidies. But it seems that they are struggling to find ta- right talents, you know, and the talents with the right skills or the talent willings to come to work in big cities. As we talked with Jack before, one of the challenges in these indigenous communities is that they, they know they want to stay in their indigenous communities. They want to be supporting their indigenous communities and supporting their economy. But they also have that gap. And the gap is, is that, you know, we can get all the tools and the knowledge, but we don't we have this gap of how do we translate that into application? And in order to translate it into application, really the solutions are how do I get out of the community to go get that application and then come back to the community again? And as you said, you know, there's a limited talent pool. There's some challenges around these things. That question, is it there actually limited talent pool or access to the talent pool? You know, this is two different things. Maybe there is talent out there, but we don't have access to them. I think this is something that we need to ask Jack, because I think this is a challenge. Is it a limited talent pool or is there ample resources and ample talent, but this not ex- how do we access it? Absolutely. So let's bring Jack Smith again. Yes. Welcome, Jack. We're so glad to have you back, my friend. It, it was such an interesting journey for the last couple of episodes we've had. And we're here for some more wisdom. And I can't wait to chat with you. So, Jack, how are you doing today? I'm really well, and I'm glad to be here again today. I wouldn't refer to what I know as wisdom, but more as what I could tell by way of stories that reflect my experience. Absolutely, Jack. Absolutely. Um, we finished last episode about the challenges of talents in indigenous people, especially under remote places. So I want to know about what is the challenge of indigenous people in regard of skills, gaining skills, or using their skills? Right. Well, just just to uh, recap a little bit from the last time we said there are quite a few social things that are kind of in the way of getting to the point before you can even really go about developing the skills or putting people in the in the right mind frame or, you know, whatever that means to acquire some of those skills, to be motivated to want to acquire those skills and so on. We talk about things like, uh, you know, the, the workforce or the employment opportunities that are off of Indigenous territory, not wanting to leave home, that sort of thing. Actually, some of the other social ones that we didn't bring up at the last discussion are related to uh, the availability of uh, living accommodation in the community, something as you would think that's fairly simple, or not having good water in the community. So there's all sorts of social things that impede, first of all, your motivation to be at home and develop business and um, diversify the economy at home. And to make that contribution is a bit of a challenge. 
And sometimes, too, there's a human component to that, which we haven't dis- discussed, is that I had a student one time, uh, many years ago, I was teaching at the Nicola Valley Institute of Technology and I had a student who was telling me about, well, you know, I can get all this training here and I can read all the books I want about business and administration, but do you think I can get a job at home? There's internal conflict uh, or there's, I shouldn't say conflict, but there might be internal issues about why there might not be available funds, there might not be a home for that person to live in, to stay there, whatever. For whatever reason, that person was telling me they felt more welcome in another First Nations community or Indigenous community where they were able to find work. I think one of the large issues, the other thing is one we raised but didn't really talk a lot about is um, is that uh, there's a thin layer of talent available Whenever we have jobs or whether it's a short-term job that we're able to get funding for, whether it's a business opportunity that an Indigenous community is able to create, then you start to look for, we want to hire Indigenous people. We want to promote Indigenous people into certain positions that they uh, haven't been having access to. So you find that across Canada and maybe around the world, there's there's many Indigenous people who have a lot of uh, great ideas, a lot of talent, a lot of a lot of uh, contributions to make in in business and and so on, but they don't have that. Pardon me, and they get snapped up right away. So here's another one of the corporations will snap them up, government will snap them up, uh, First Nations community will say, you know, Jack, come on back to the community. Why don't you uh, do this work for us? Become the economic development officer. And I'll say, okay, that sounds interesting, but when I think about what I'm going to face back there. Is do I want to live there? Do I want to actually? Is is everybody going to be supportive of the init- of the business initiatives that I might want to bring there? Um, what uh, kind of contribution can I make, and how comfortable am I going to be in that situation? And and what's the salary? What's the compensation piece? Because there's this whole HR piece around that. Are there pension benefits? Are there uh, medical benefits beyond what you get? We have great Medicare uh, system compared to other parts of the world, but uh, you know, and sometimes some businesses or governments offer way better compensation kind of packages than what a First Nation or an Indigenous community or agency might be able to offer. So those kinds of things, I and and so that talent pool, it's 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 actually fairly thin. There is a lot of incentive for employers to hire Indigenous people in terms of tax benefit, salary subsidies. And so it makes sense for businesses to hire Indigenous in terms of cost as well. But uh, even in terms of pension, um, I think that it's, it's uh, I don't know, you let me, please let me know if it's the government help anything for pension for Indigenous people if they want to be, if they find a job in a private sector? Well, um, current situation, probably Canada, other other places, is that, uh, you know, there's less opportunity to have a defined kind of pension benefit as part of your compensation package. In many instances, there's getting less and less of that. So in some ways, we're, we're, we're becoming on the same level playing field as many other Canadians at large uh, in the workforce. That's probably not the biggest issue, but it is a big issue. Like can't, government of Canada, for instance, and I know this intimately because my wife is a is a employee of the government of Canada, and um, and so she has a great benefit package, and uh, the pension in there is a defined defined pension going forward. Will that be an incentive for some people? Um, and I think here we get to the crux of the thing. Right, because there's jobs out there, corporate Canada 
picks up the talented people that we have available. You know, some of them remain on reserve. Lots get snapped up by government, etc. Otherwise, you're looking at, I mean, any tax advantage you might have if you leave the reserve, there, there's kind of competing interests there. But what, Jack, you said before is the biggest challenge here is to keep these individuals in the communities. And if the incentive is to go outside the community to support the private network elsewhere, then how does that benefit them? Well, maybe in a couple of ways, leadership roles, like these people become, can become mentors or people like me can go out and work for a while and gain those skills, uh, add to my uh, you know, training and education, come back to the community and work in the community and, and try to foster more of that happening you know, in the, in the community. But it's, it is a bit of a catch-22 because at the same time as we're saying, you know, that we want people to be in the community at the same time we're saying, you know what, one of the challenges earlier on about economic development generally is if we restrict it to community and on our traditional territory, we often don't have the opportunity now, although that might come, that might come in the future, but we have to go out there, get training, get you know, most of the schools are out there, et cetera, et cetera, unless you have something happening internally, right? How about the remote work, remote education? COVID taught us a lot of things that can do everything remote, basically. <laughs> but I know that you you were talking about the technology infrastructure, having access to the technology and internet. It's kind of a problem there, right? It is if we have this technology and access to internet for everyone, they can find the remote work, they can find the remote education as well. What do you think? And going back to the same, say some of the things I learned in business school, right? I think each community, whether it be an urban, say a reserve and or traditional territory community, even an agency that hires Indigenous people, works with Indigenous clientele, whatever, and could possibly benefit, I would like to say should benefit, would benefit from developing strategic plans around their labor needs. You know, first of all, assessing what, what they have in the community. What are the community's needs? And then look at the people that they have. And if the intention is, which I, I would suggest it is in the vision or mission statements of, of most First Nations, they want to provide economic opportunities for all their people. So uh, in the Indigenous community, wherever that might be, a strategic plan that focuses on what the nation's needs are. And if it's a lack of technology, for example, you do a SWOT analysis, right? And if that's a weakness, then, you know, what are the opportunities for remedying that issue, right? And then work on that or set aside that or, or get somebody to champion that. If you don't have the talent in-house, then you have to find it someplace. You have to find the funding for it. And that in turn raises another set of challenges which are related to, you know, often you can get funding for certain things, but, you know, you have that bureaucratic challenge around how you can allocate those dollars and actually spend them. So sometimes it's not in a very dynamic way or fashion. It's not very flexible. It doesn't match the needs of the community. So part of this whole strategic planning following from a, an analysis of the needs of the community or the needs of the businesses within the community or what the wishes of the community are in terms of economic and business development long-term has got to be married to what the individuals in your community. So you have to do an assessment of that as well. What are the community uh, members' talents, current? what is their current training, education? What are they motivated to do? I think particularly because there's such an attachment to this whole social 
thing. And if you look at some of the leaders in um, business uh, in the indigenous communities today, there is a difference. I mean, people have uh, a different outlook at uh, in the communities about what they would want business to do for them and what would they do if they became a Bill Gates, for example, where would their money go? You know, a lot of that money would go back into community, I think, more so than just directly into the wealth. So there's different values in that. And so you incorporate that in your whole strategic planning. And then at the end of the day, what do you think that's going to take, given all the challenges we, we talked about, technology challenges, the lack of access to training, or for some of us, it's not a problem to go to school in New York or Paris, right? <laughs> I, w- I went to Bordeaux for my education. <laughs> it's possible. I mean, but for many, it's leaving home and leaving your way of life, your culture for a long time. And I mean, even for yourself, maybe. eh? But if I go to Paris, it's a different culture. But I happen to have some Franco-Albertan. I was raised partially by that in the system. But uh, these cultural matches are really important, not just for the individual who wants to pursue and develop businesses and how much do they incorporate that in their business. Because they think about their land. They think about their language. We think about our home. You know, we think about our homeland and, and how much we, we don't ha- either have access to it or are going to mess it for a Those sorts of things sort of are part of the thing. So uh, I had a conversation with uh, Mrs. Smith not long ago, and we were talking about businesses and, you know, six, 700 uh, First Nations communities, uh, a whole bunch of other Indigenous communities, the Inuit and so on in Canada, and what the community's particular needs are when it comes to providing support and developing the talent in within the communities is different. So it, whatever programs for funding, which is a challenge right, to get funding to create opportunities, the implementation of the strategy at the end of the day, once you've done you know, your analysis and then sort of put in you know, a, a path forward, moving forward, you can write those in cultural terms. And how does that match? But it has to be flexible. You have to be able to pivot where it's not working. I've run a couple of programs or a number of programs, actually, that made an effort to develop capacity and, say, natural resource officer type work or even administrative work. And so bringing people along and providing the mentorship necessary to motivate people to see why it's useful for somebody to have the technological skills, say, in mapping or even in something, you know, using programs on the computer and that and how it applies to the work they can do and how it benefits themselves and the community and their work. And that takes a lot of time and effort. So I think any kind of implementation after you've done your analysis and set your program up, and sometimes it takes a long time. And and a lot of programs are year to year, right? I mean, funding from government for a lot of programs aren't long term necessarily. So when the company sets up a strategic plan, it also has to set up the the financing. Like I mean if it's a First Nations indigenous company, say for example at the Brandons. And another experience I have is with a um, economic development corporation that has a number of businesses. So it's diversified among um you know, running the, the usual gas station and convenience store kind of thing, along with attached Tim Hortons. We have an agriculture enterprise, a forestry enterprise, a land management aspect, a couple of other irons in the fire in development, even consideration of, you know, marijuana growth, agriculture type activity. In all of these here, like, and I'm carefully watching how we develop our uh, community. So about five years ago, you'd say that community didn't have that talent pool. But because we have the economy, the diversified economy now, we're taking 
very detailed steps towards making sure those businesses are actually a success. And so far, so good. And one is a, a campground, for example, and one is a waterfront development aspect. And so what I'm seeing after five years of, or maybe now four, because we've been in full operation for a little over three, I think, is that the community is developing. We are developed. The Economic Development Corporation is developing that talent pool. But on a good part of it is that hands-on mentoring, supervisory mentoring. And so that being a successful thing, I mean, I've noted that in the past in these other programs, but because they were tied to funding, that was very short-lived. But in this situation, First Nations control government. It's our business. We can develop the people and we, we have the financial means, but also the financial plan for that development. So saying this, and I and I'm kind of going to come back to this again, because we we say we can offer the programs, we can offer the knowledge, but what I'm hearing here is the gap is between the knowledge and the execution. Like it's great you get the knowledge, but if you don't get the practical execution of the mentorship in how to put that into action, that's where the that's where it seems to be the divide is. It's some kind of basic skills that employees need. We have this challenge with international students as well. You can be professional in your own culture, but when you come to Canada, you need to learn the professionalism that works here. What I hear is that it's similar because you keep telling that it's related to their culture, you have to assess them. So you believe there is a professionalism there, but doesn't mean that this professionalism can be matched to what Canadian mindset can be said. I mean, it's the others, employers in Canada, then they require. Maybe we should assess them to find what the re- basic relevant skills that they have, for example, such as communication, presentation, you know, some, some sort of this that it can help them to get a job in this market. I'm thinking of the organizations, at least in BC, of um, there's employment and training societies, and there's a pretty strong network of that throughout BC. And I think maybe Canada, pretty sure if I remember correctly, most of the funding for, for those agencies come from Canada. And pick up a lot of the slack where, you know, the universities and colleges really have, uh, you know, different types of uh, professional training, right? So business, law, uh, doctor, etc., dentist, and so on. What happens to the tradespeople and the technology people, right? So these training, education training societies do a lot of work and with uh, Indigenous communities and individuals. I think the gap is clear between, you know, implementation and, and what there is, right? It's like we talked at one point about taking those studies off the shelf and then if there's recommendations and they're putting them into effect, and how do you do that? But the other thing is, so that in itself is problematic. And But I think in terms of that gap, because I think full circle, we need to address that. And I think that's one of the big challenges. You've done your SWAT, you've got funding, you've got all that stuff. At the end of the day, who implements it, right? Exactly, exactly. And how implemented, the how, the execution piece that the Dave said. Yes, we need to implement this. Traditionally, you have to come to a school or you have to take this online courses to get it. Is it a good way? Or do we need something more about it? But I also think it needs to be directly reflected back to the community eventually. Somehow we have to create that circle of implementation and saying, okay, well, that's great. You implemented it. Now, how do you drive that back into your community in other implementations that will support the community? So when I focused on technology in the past, I mean, that's just one of the issues for some communities. Some communities don't have that issue. There is the access there. 
So that's not necessarily the issue. That, I want to go back to that flexibility or the kind of strategic plan you, you put in place for that. There's got to be an implementation component, right? And it's got to say part of that implementation is getting the resources that you need to put in place to make it happen, right? Who's the tech person who comes to greet me if I have an issue with one of their applications or so on? It's uh, usually a, a non-Indigenous person. We, we, I know we have people, but like I said, they get snapped up by somebody else. But back at the First Nation, we have we have a lot of people like Jack, who's from a different community, or Dave, who's from outside the community, and Blair, you know, and then come in and help, and, and then but you can't stay, right? You got careers, you got other things going on, and stuff like that. So, it, and it's got to be longer term, and it's got to be. A commitment to happen because like like I say the programs I was able to run in the short term produced some pretty good results and just you know hinted at data or evidence that you know if you did this if you did this hands-on you brought in mentoring you could use technology effectively but you also need that hands-on uh, personal uh, touch here and there and you need supervision you need guidance you need you need to do that and I, I i think that would bring more people along and at least get people you know you mentioned the word motivation one of you did uh, a while ago you know part of that is assisting people with seeing how what they can do will benefit them and the community and and change some of the i want to be sensitive about you know there there's a reason why some of our communities, uh, at least some of the ones that I've worked in, haven't developed those skills because they've sort of created a dependency um, on, you know, governments or or the band office or or someone to to lead the way. And and so those, uh, I think, the real heroes in in business and economic development are the ones that say no, we should be leading it. I mean, the band office is built for developing it. You know, implementing programs, right? It's 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 an arm of government in a way, and not necessarily our government. But if we want to truly be the boss of that, then uh, we have to start taking control over that, and and we can do that by creating these uh, longer terms. And and if we develop those strategies, um, we can include things like workplace integration. We can include long term mentoring, and uh, and this other experience that I have with the development corporation more recently, we're seeing a couple of individuals who started out as counter staff, but who are now in supervisory, uh, frontline supervisory management within, you know, uh, 12 to 18 months, but they had some fairly intensive training. And it's it's really a success story. The business is doing well. The individuals in the community are doing well because we, we did a quick calculation of the uh, of the uh, dollars that were being paid out in uh, salaries to the community's people, it's you know upwards of half a million dollars that wasn't circulating in the con- in the economy previously. So there's the multiplier effect because we have a business at which you know they can spend those dollars or some of those dollars, opposed to taking it outside the community and so on. So it's really good for the whole the business and the individual, but it's also great for the community because here's one of the differences, I think, where it's 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 not a social enterprise that we've created, but there's a commitment on the behalf of the businesses that when there's a profit, that part of it goes back to the community to uh, supplement other kinds of programs and development, infrastructure development within the community, right, to make up for some of those other shortfalls. So it's, it's a good example of a community that's moving forward. On the other hand, we've had that experience, I've had that experience with other communities who, won't, who haven't made that kind of progress. Part of it's due to their own commitment to uh, economic development, lack of a strategic plan, not having the available capacity to do it. And, and the communities, and they're, they're a good example of a community that uh, – 
I mean, people probably watching me <laughs> might know who that I'm referring to, but that's fine. I don't think it's, I don't think I'm, I'm saying anything out of line, but I think, I think what we're, we're seeing is that, you know, there's a contrast there. Two communities, approximately the same size, approximately with the same type of scenario, uh, that baseline that they come from and how they've learned to, how they've developed or not developed uh, some opportunities that they have and the individuals along the way. And uh, I think here's, here's another, another thing that I think is a powerful thing to say is that, um, because I believe that the individual has a lot to say about where they want to go. And that requires a lot of guidance as well, right? And I'm, and I'm not saying that everybody is going to be a businessman or wants to be a businessman or everybody wants to be a you know professional, but I think there's more opportunity out there, particularly this day and age when we can actually take our values that are so uh, useful, I think, to Canadian business uh, in terms of stewardship of the land, maintenance of, you know, maintaining who we are in fight in the, in the face of all sort of global pressures to, to be, uh, you know, full blown capitalists or whatever and not think about the social side of things. These are things that are all solvable. And so I think what we need to do today is I think we need to ask you, Jack, to give us a challenge. Let's throw a challenge out there to maybe help start this direction to help solve some of these challenges. What's your challenge today, Jack? Well, my challenge today is that, you know, recognizing that the economy generally is a construct. Business is a construct. And probably how we do all of that is a construct. So given what we talked about today, being creative, like open, you know, feel free to think wild and crazy thoughts about what would you include in in your strategy for developing the capacity, developing the talent that that is there and create a sort of a deeper pool of, of uh, capacity to move forward uh, in developing businesses and developing the overall economy in Indigenous communities. And, and don't res- it's not just restricted to, say, reserve lands or whatever, but it could be across the board, right? I mean, what would your strategy be and what would your implementation plan be for that strategy? And when do we review it? When do we pivot or what kinds of things do we look at before we say, OK, this isn't working? We, you know, include all of that in your strategic plan. I think that would be, geez, I think that'd be a good major paper. And I'd love to see one of those or more of those because uh, then, I, then, then we could uh, share those with the communities. That would be great. Excellent. Well, you heard Jack, guys. We need that strategic plan. Let's get working on that. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Dave. That was another episode of Innovation Field. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Innovation Field. We are on all podcast streaming platforms, Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Visit our website at www.youcanwest.ca slash innovation fuel also follow us on instagram at innovation underscore fuel